Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Paymon Salashur. And I pull my pants back up and I say, where's the kitchen? I want water. That and more. But before that, I want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon members, Susan Matthews and J.R. Bai. We always give a little shout out when someone gives $25 or more per month, and it means the absolute world to us. It is hugely, hugely helpful for us to keep this whole thing running with our huge staff and all of our live shows and all of our podcasts and radio style stories and running our school, the whole lot of it. And there's so much to find on our Patreon, so many bonus stories, so many check-ins, all sorts of levels of prizes you can get. There's also things like, you know, our entire season one and season two remastered with all the ads taken out. You can get the current, the contemporary episodes with the ads taken out, the very weeks that they show up online. Just become a member at patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash risk. I also want to encourage you to go to risk-show.com and check out the live shows page. It's risk-show.com slash tour to see where we're showing up next. We have shows in New York, LA, DC, Austin. The ticket links are already right there at risk-show.com slash tour. And finally, you don't have time to be going to the post office nowadays, but stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. post office to your computer. Just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, 
anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We've used Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio for many years now, and we've always loved it. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is The Ventures behind us now. And we are calling this week's episode with the Mystery Box. Now, if you don't know, the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon, is one of our very, very favorite storytelling shows. And so we finally decided to team up with Reba Sparrow and Eric Schur, right there in Portland, we did a Risk slash The Mystery Box show evening. Now, as you know, Risk often features stories about sex, sexuality, and all, but The Mystery Box show, that's all that they do. All their stories are about that. So this entire episode is going to be stories about sex and sexuality. Now, you can hear just what an experience it is to be at a Risk Live show in these recordings. That's why you really got to listen to the end of the show when I list where we're coming next. You know, we've got so many great shows coming up in New York and L.A. and Austin and D.C. and San Francisco. So we want you to stay tuned and come on out and see us when we do this kind of stuff because... It's always an unforgettable evening. And we're so thankful to Eric and Reba of the Mystery Box Show for how much they pitched in and helped us create this incredible evening that you're about to hear a recording of. We are going to start with the wonderful Kent Whipple. This is his second time on the show. You can find Kent on Instagram at Kentagram. And here he is now with a story we call... You and Me Against the World. So I was um, on the phone with my girlfriend, Rachel, praying that my mother wasn't listening from the phone in her room. You see, Rachel was my boyfriend, Rick. But I had read an article where they said that 40% of all gay kids end up homeless. So I come from a southern white trash family. So being disowned and 
put on the street was a reality. So Rick became Rachel. We were living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My parents had just gotten a divorce, and my elder siblings had all moved out. So it was just my mom and I. She loved the Helen Reddy uh, song, You and Me Against the World. So she'd say, honey, you know, it's just you and me against the world. It, it's just us. We got to look out for each other. And it was that way for a long time until it wasn't. She had developed a pretty major drinking problem due to an undiagnosed mental illness. And uh, I was having gay sex for the first time. <laughs> a lot of it. <laughs> with my, 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 with Rick, Rachel Rick. I was digmatized. <laughs> I knew I was gay at a real young age. Um, I used to watch Lee Majors, The Bionic Man. Yeah. <laughs> his burgundy velour running suit with his hairy chest right there. And, and his junk bouncing around every time he ran. But... I had to live in shame. I, I, I had to be quiet. Uh, nobody could know about it. My mom, Sherry, she was 5'4", maybe, 125 pounds wet, bleach blonde hair, and always had fire engine red lips. We were having trouble. I didn't know what to do. I was a teen. I was filled with tension. We were secrets. So I was always trying to piss her off. And I kept calling her Sherry her first name, and she hated it. I'd say things like, um, good morning, Sherry. She'd, you look here, Mr. Big and Independent. Or, hey, could you pass the salt, Sherry? You just get off your high horse, little Caesar. <laughs> I still don't know what that means. <laughs> but there was tension. We lived in a small apartment, a two-bedroom apartment in Albuquerque, and I don't know if it was the cramped space or if it was uh, me secretly going out to date Rick, Rachel, Rick, Rachel, Rick. But things started building up. Tension started growing. I was falling in love with Rick, but I had to do it in shame. And she was falling in love with booze, and she didn't do it with shame. But every night, I'd hear her going out drinking these Midori sours until she'd pass out. As soon as I thought things were getting weird, I'd go next door to a Circle K, which was right next to our apartment, where I, I'd call Rick. And, oh, he'd say things like, I really miss you, tiger. Oh. <laughs> Well, she started figuring things out. She decided to clean my room. She hadn't cleaned my room since I was six years old, but she was cleaning through my drawers and cleaning under the mattress and cleaning my closet, ironically. <laughs> I, I don't know what she was looking for, if it was the love letters or porn, but she'd never find those. I didn't know what to do. I, I, I was in love with Rick. But she'd needle and, and ask. She'd be like, oh, how's your girlfriend, uh, Rachel? When am I going to meet Rachel? And he'd be like, oh, well, she's really sick. 
I always had lame excuses. Oh, she's really tired, or oh, she works nights. <laughs> but Sherry was figuring it out. She started listening to my calls from her bedroom. All of my calls to my friends, to family members, to my dad. I could tell because I could hear her drunken breathing on the phone or, or her hand go across the receiver to try to hide things. She was looking for evidence and I was looking just as hard to make sure she couldn't find it. Well, one night, it was a freezing cold night in January and the desert winds come in and they can shred you. So I didn't want to get all dressed up and go to the Circle K to call Rick. So I waited until I stopped to hear her staggering around and uh, I thought she'd passed out. So I picked up the phone from my room and I called Rick and we were talking like high school gay boys. <laughs> Dirty but not raunchy. <laughs> you know, how we liked kissing and how we thought each other was super cute <laughs> and how we wanted to see each other's cocks. And then all of a sudden, on the phone, boom, there's Sherry's voice. She goes, Kent Leslie, you hang up the goddamn phone. We're going to talk about you being a fruit. I was mortified. Rick heard it all. She finally had the evidence she'd been looking for forever. I, I didn't know what to do. We got into a huge fight. We fought all night. She, she kept calling me a little faggot or a little fairy, and I kept calling her a drunk bitch. Harsh words that went nowhere and went on forever. Well, we didn't talk for two days. I walked around. I was just waiting, knowing something would happen. And then on the afternoon of the second day, I come home, and she's waiting, and she goes, get in the goddamn car. I'm going to take you to a counselor, and we're going to cure you of being a deviant faggot. I, I prayed to her, no. <laughs> and she goes, it's either that or you're out of the house. Now, I had heard of these doctors before that would um, put electrodes on your junk and electrocute you if you got a heart on. It's called conversion therapy. Now, that kind of sounds appealing now. <laughs> but back then, it, uh, I was scared shitless. We were in the car. It was late afternoon and the, uh, late going home to work traffic. And, and she was drunk and sh she was weaving through the, through the lanes. And I was begging her. I'm like, Mom, no. She goes, it's that or you get out of the house. She was weaving so much that I actually was praying that we would get in a wreck, but we didn't. So we got to the counselors. His office was like this 1970s thing, Aspen paneling and Boston ferns and smelled like corn nuts. <laughs> and the counselor, he was, he was a pretty nice guy. He was in his 50s, looked like a, a bald Alan Alda. And 
He just sat there for two hours, taking notes, nodding his head, looking around. No electrodes, just lots of questions. After we were done, he told me to go wait in the lobby, and he asked to see Sherry and asked her to come in. So she went in, and I sat there for 15 excruciatingly long minutes. I didn't know what was going to happen. Then all of a sudden, Sherry burst through his door. Her face was as red as her lips. She was furious. She goes, get in the car. This, this guy's a quack. Maybe he's a fruit, too. I, I said, what's going on? Well, apparently... The doctor said that I was doing very well adjusting to my sexual orientation under the circumstances. And he wanted to talk to her about her drinking. Finally, someone, I wasn't the bad guy, I wasn't the one with the problem. We never talked about it again. We just went on with this very normal dysfunction. (laughs) And I went off to college. Now, when I was at college, I'd I'd call mom every Saturday from the laundry room uh, in my dorm to check on her. You know, she was a fucking mess, but she was my fucking mess. And I loved her. And Sherry started asking these questions, which I guess are, are pretty normal, but... Not to me, because they would be like, she'd be like, oh, hi, honey. Have you met any nice girls in college? <laughs> what? I thought we had a big fight about this and, and resolved this ages ago. And she'd be like, oh, how are the hot co-eds? What the fuck? <laughs> Every time it brought back all of those drunken, painful memories and, and the whole thing with the counselor incident. Then, then she'd be like, oh, I bet you have to beat away the girls with a stick. I lost it. I didn't, I, I stopped calling. I was, I, I, actually at that moment, I looked around the laundry room for a camera as this were some weird sick joke and I was being recorded because I thought we had this all figured out. Just when I was developing stability in my life and figuring out who I was as a gay dude, she had to fucking wreck it again. I got home from college. Um, it was late December. It was Christmas break, and uh, it was dark and cold, and so was I. And I walked into the room, into the apartment, and I see Sherry get up. She had a drink in her hand. She got up, knocked over a lamp, and said, well, there's my lady killer. I lost it. I lost it. I looked at her and I said, listen, I'm a queer, a faggot, a homo, a cocksucker, all your words, not mine. Then I went to my bedroom and I slammed the door and the house, uh, the apartment echoed with silence. I didn't know what to do. I was enraged. And the next morning I, I woke up and the tension in the apartment was so thick it was like swimming through pudding. And I walked into the kitchen and there was Sherry sitting on a chair. The kitchen reeked of coffee and and stale cigarettes and sadness. Her eyes were all bloodshot. 
She'd been up crying all night, I guess. Well, I was ready to go. I didn't know where I was going to go, but I was ready to go. And she looked at me and she said, Kent Leslie, I forgot. I'm sorry. I forgot. <laughs> I guess through her mental illness or through her drinking or just avoidance, she forgot <laughs> or she chose to forget. Well, it deflated all of my anger. I actually felt pity for her. She looked at me, she says, honey, I, I love you, and I don't want to lose you. And I said, mom, I love you too. She goes, well, I guess we all have our flaws, don't we? <laughs> I didn't see it as a flaw. <laughs> but I knew that was the best I was going to get, and I was okay with it. Oh my god, that story reminded me of how insane my own mother was about denial. She would find clues that I was gay like on a weekly basis all throughout my childhood. At one point when I was about 15 years old, she found a stack of photographs of River Phoenix <laughs> and Kirk Cameron under my mattress of my bed. I had torn them all out of Teen Beat magazine. And I just said, oh, I don't know how that got there. <laughs> then when I finally came out when I was 18, I was like, but you knew, didn't you? And she was like, it never entered my mind. Uh-huh. Our next storyteller, I am so thrilled to bring up to the stage. She, you already know well, she is the executive producer and story coach and co-host of the Mystery Box Show here in Portland. Please welcome to the stage the fabulous Reba Sparrow! I'm in my boyfriend's kitchen making smoothies. And I open up this young coconut. Those are the ones that still have the coconut water still inside of them. And I turn it upside down into the blender, and it gushes with coconut water. And I'm so excited, because young coconuts can be hit or miss with their water content. And I turn to Justin, my boyfriend, and I say, Justin, did you see how much water just came out of this coconut? And he says... Why, yes, I did. It reminds me of my favorite kind of porn. And I was very confused because I did not know what coconut porn was. And after a moment of staring at my blank face, he finally says to me, I like squirting. And I said, oh, uh, oh, here's your smoothie. 
And we eat breakfast in silence, simultaneously thinking about vaginal secretions. (laughs) And we never talk about it again. Now, I had never squirted before, but I heard in passing that that's a thing you could actually teach yourself how to do. And I thought, well, now that I know that Justin likes squirting, and I like Justin, I should probably teach myself how to do this so that he'll want to stay with me for the long term. <laughs> like, like relationship insurance. So I think... This will be easy because the internet knows how to do everything. So I type into Google, how do I make myself squirt? (laughs) And all these videos popped up. None of them instructional. (laughs) The best thing I could find was one thread on Reddit that had... Two helpful suggestions. Uh, One was that I stimulate my G-spot to try to squirt. And I was like, well, that makes sense because I know where my G-spot is and we've hung out a couple times, but we're not like BFF. So maybe that can be good homework for me. And there were a couple sexual positions they suggested too to help me access the G-spot. And the other thing was to make sure that I strengthen my pelvic floor, my, my PC muscle by doing Kegel exercises. So are you familiar? Like, I'm doing it right now. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, You know, where the the muscles sort of contract there. And I was like, well, I already know how to do that. So I said, just do that more. So I devised this plan. And that night, I Kegel my way over to Justin's house. And I say, hey, I would love to try something very specific in bed tonight. He has no idea I have an agenda. (laughs) And he says, okay, uh, what's up? And I was like, well, I would like to get onto all fours. This was one of the positions suggested by the internet. Uh, And I want you to spank me really hard, Um, which had nothing to do with squirting. I just wanted it. (laughs) And... Then I said, I want you to vigorously finger me from behind. And he says, hot, I'm in. (laughs) So that night, the act ensues. And everything goes fine. We both have a good time, you know, typical sexy time. But nothing happens, uh, meaning that I do not squirt. And I was like, weird, because I did everything that the internet told me to do. Maybe, maybe it's me. Like, maybe something's wrong with me. Okay, like before I get ahead of myself, maybe I should actually talk to a real person about this. Because believe it or not, in all of my years of girls' nights out and chats with my mom on the phone, <laughs> the topic of how do I make myself squirt just never came up. <laughs> And I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of acquaintances in the sex industry. So I thought, well, maybe I can just secure some coffee dates and have some chats and they'll give me some tips and tricks. (laughs) So within a couple days, I had two coffee dates set to talk about squirting and how I was going to do it. And I thought, this is really awesome because these are people who have probably been in the same boat as me. They understand what I'm going through. They're going to be able to help me out. And my first coffee date... 
I was met with a lovely gal who I knew from around, and she was like, oh, you mean you don't already squirt and you want to learn how? I don't know what to tell you, because it just comes really naturally to me constantly, all the time. I'm afraid I'm going to drown my partner every time we have sex. (laughs) And I was like, cool. (laughs) And the second person I had coffee with said almost the same thing. She was like, oh, I thought you just wanted to talk about how much I squirt all the time and how it's really annoying that I have to get water-resistant sheets every time. (laughs) And I was like, I'm so happy for you. (laughs) And I was happy for them, sure. Uh, But I was really sad for me (laughs) because they were not helping me to reach my squirting goal. And the fact that this came so naturally and easily to them just reiterated the possibility that something actually really was wrong with my body. And I started to think, well, if I did what the internet said and it didn't work, and these people saying it comes so naturally and it doesn't come naturally to me, clearly my vagina is broken. And then I started to spiral with these negative thoughts. And I thought, well, if my vagina is broken, does that explain why my tits are too small, why my hips aren't wide enough? I'm just inadequate all around. And I started, and all crazy. So I decided, before Justin found out about all of this, clearly he's going to leave me when he finds out that my vagina is broken and I can't squirt, that I needed to see a professional. So I enrolled in a squirting workshop. I hear some of you have also done this. (laughs) Now, I didn't know squirting workshops even existed, but I was doing all the research. The stakes were high here. I did not want to lose Justin, and I did not want a broken vagina. So I think if there are enough people to warrant a squirting workshop, obviously I'm going to find some camaraderie here. So I go to this workshop, and there's like seven of us there. And everyone is very quiet into themselves. Nobody gives eye contact or talks to each other. So I was like, okay, not finding camaraderie, just going to focus on the instructor. And the instructor reiterated the things I learned on the internet, which were stimulate the G-spot and make sure you exercise doing your Kegel exercises. Um, She also suggested that you be very zen and relaxed and stress-free. And I was like, that is the missing piece. (laughs) I have not been meditating my way into squirting. And then she dispelled some common myths. She assured us that squirting was, in fact, not urine, that it's this whole other fluid that collects in these glands next to the urethra. And when those glands uh, are full, it presses up against your bladder, makes you feel like you have to pee. And then when it's expressed or when you squirt, uh, that pressure is released and it can be mistaken for urine. Don't take that as an educational talk. (laughs) This is just me remembering things from this workshop. But most of all, what I took away from this workshop was hope. Because the instructor looked me dead in the eyes and she said, if you have a vagina, and I was like, me? I got got a vagina. (laughs) Then you are capable of squirting. 
And I was like, okay, I got a vagina. I'm capable of squirting. She said, yes, you just need to practice. You need to practice more. And I was like, but I've been practicing. She practice more. So for the next like three or four weeks, I am doing kegels morning, noon, and night. Like first thing in the morning in my car drive, in meetings, at the grocery store, I'm doing kegels. And before I would take a shower, I would get into an empty bathtub every day empty bathtub just in case I did squirt it was easy cleanup and I would access my g-spot with my fingers and I we'd hang out for a little while um and I did this for weeks and the whole time I was meditating squirt 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 (laughs) and still nothing was happening And I start, my anxiety just gets so intense at this point. I was like, oh my gosh, it's been like six months. At some point, Justin is going to realize that I am not able to bring his fantasy into fruition. And he is not going to want to stay with me for the long term. And clearly something is very wrong with my body. What else is going to go wrong? I decide that it's time to come clean to Justin and just rip the band-aid off so if he's gonna break up with me he's gonna break up with me but I'm gonna present it in a way that's sort of testing the waters so this is what I did (laughs) I went back over to Justin's house and I was like hey remember that one time we made smoothies and he told me you like squirting and he was like yeah And I said, so I've been trying to make myself squirt ever since then. I've been doing research on the internet and I've been talking to people and I even went to this workshop and I keep trying and trying and trying and I just can't do it and I really want to do it. Can you help me? And Justin was like, what? (laughs) Whoa, hold the phone. What are you doing? And I was like, I'm just, I want to do this squirting thing. And I presented it like it's a thing I wanted to do. Not that I thought he was going to leave me. Um, And so... (laughs) He was like, well, of course, this seems really important to you. Of course, I'm going to help you. (laughs) So I said, great. Do you have any ideas? And he said, well, yeah. We just got this new G-Spot vibrator that we haven't tried yet. Do Do you think we should try that? And I was like, of course, a toy. Never crossed my mind. (laughs) This whole time, I was just going in with my fingers. And I was like, maybe that's the missing piece. Perfect. So that night, we set the scene. I mean, we've got candles going and like wind instruments in the background like they do at the spa. And Justin gives me a massage to to help relax me. And, you know, I'm totally nude. He's got all the oils going and he's naked and he is visibly turned on, if you know what I'm saying. Um, which is exciting to me. And I'm like, okay, I am zen. We've got his hands, my hands, the vibrator. There's the, the, the moon and stars have a line. It is happening. And it is time for the injection. So he slides this vibrator up inside of me and it hits my G spot like right away in a really good spot. And the cool thing about this toy is that it has dual motors. So it's vibrating on the inside and it has an additional motor on the outside that's stimulating my clitoris. It's pretty good. So that's happening, and Justin's still massaging here and there, and he's like sucking on my nipples, and I'm just like letting it happen, like be relaxed and zen, and I'm visualizing all this like a waterfall just coming out of me. I'm visualizing drowning my partner, just (laughs) 
It's all going to happen. And this goes on for like five or six minutes. And it's just, it's all just happening. I'm like, any minute now, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. I feel it. I know it. And I'm tensing up. And like nine or 10 minutes go by. And I'm like, any minute, it's going to happen. It's happening. 12, 13, 14, 15 minutes go by. And it's pretty evident that nothing is happening again. And this was kind of the last straw for me. I just felt completely defeated. And I started to ball my face off in the middle of sex. <laughs> and Justin, again, does not know what to say. And he just goes, no, 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 you're pretty. <laughs> Which makes me cry even more. And the vibrator is still going, so I'm like, <laughs> and as I'm crying and vibrating and crying and vibrating, I start to feel this sensation in the pit of my stomach. And it just rises up my chest and starts shooting out my arms and through my fingertips and down my legs and out my toes. And I have the most intense orgasm. <laughs> like the kind where the clouds part and the angels start singing. <laughs> and everything feels right with the world. Orgasm. And I did not squirt. And I did not care. <laughs> now it's pretty clear I had this big physical release. But that orgasm also allowed space for me to have this mental and emotional space where I was uh, released, where I was able to acknowledge for the very first time that, oh, hey. Justin actually never once asked me to squirt for him. Not once. That was just me putting all this undue pressure on myself. And because I was seeking outside validation from him instead of seeking it from within, it was causing me to have all of those negative feelings about myself. And I recognized that, oh, maybe my vagina's not broken. Maybe my perspective is. And I came to the conclusion, lying there, very blissed out. <laughs> Angels are still singing. <laughs> Don't know where Justin went. He's like... <laughs> I was able to conclude that, you know what? My vagina and my body have always been and will continue to be valid, even if I never, ever gush like a coconut. <laughs> Reba Sparrow, everyone! Oh my goodness gracious. Reba's story actually brought this to mind because, you know, has anyone ever heard the, the term dominant anxiety? Dominant anxiety is when 
you know, you're doing BDSM play and you're in the dominant role and you're worried that you just can't pull it off. I have that. It's a lot like imposter syndrome because the thing is the dom, the dom is always expected to be the master, you know, the the know-it-all, the guy who, you know, like in the Fifty Shades thing just happens to be master of everything, that kind of thing. And I just don't feel that way most of the time. Well, a few years ago, I met this fella on a BDSM site, and he was so impressive to me. He was a a sculptor from Korea, and I was just, like, blown away by his art. So I was kind of intimidated about meeting him. Then I found out he wanted to be the submissive role in a little scene play with me. So I invited him over, and you know what? I had talked to other doms before this and let them know how nervous I was and they said oh my god if you're nervous all you have to do is put a blindfold on the sub right at the beginning of everything and they can't see how nervous you are you know they can't see you sweat so okay I told do okay your safe word will be red And then as soon as we started play, we're in my apartment, I put a blindfold on him, and I was so struck because he just went, as soon as that blindfold was on, he went limp like a wet noodle into my arms. And I was like, oh, shit. He is so good at submissiveness. Maybe my part will be easy. So I tie him to my bed, the the wrists and ankles to all the bedposts and everything. Now, I had a rescue cat way back then. (sighs) And he was just one of those problem felines, right? He, his name was Mr. Pooh, which sounds a lot cuter than his personality. Uh, He... He had been found out on the streets of Queens, and he had his balls, he had his testicles just longer than cats usually do. So he had become like a mountain lion, basically. (laughs) He was incredibly strong. And whenever I took him to the vet, he terrified the entire staff. He could really lash out at people. So anyway, back to Do. Do is tied to my bed, and I'm starting to torture him, doing all sorts of things to all his good bits. Then Mr. Pooh jumps up on the bed. And I think, oh no, Mr. Pooh is going to ruin my mojo and make me look like an idiot. So I grab the cat, and that is the point at which Mr. Pooh sinks one of his fangs as deep as he can get it into my thumb. I was just stunned in shock. I dropped the cat. And a fountain of blood starts spurting from my thumb. I had never seen anything like this before, except in like a Monty Python sketch. It's like, I didn't know this happened. And then I'm like, oh my God, dude, does he not know? No, he doesn't know. He's still blindfolded. So I'm running around searching for something to tie around my hand and I crash right into a light fixture and it goes bang, bang and falls on the floor. And when it hits, the light hits the floor. I can see all the blood I've gotten on the floor, which makes me go, ah! <laughs> and, and I, 
accidentally like splash dew in the face. Oh my God, it was like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in my apartment. So I just started screaming, red, red, red. And Dew has the blindfold on and he's like, you're safe learning? I said, yes, I am. So that night, we became the best of friends because that was the night that I learned that you can order your submissive to take you to the hospital. (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious. I want to bring our next storyteller to the stage. Now, I have a content warning here. There is uh, non-consensual activity in this next story. But she is so fabulous. Oh, my gosh. She has just returned from her countrywide tour of her show, Sexology the Musical, which will be appearing on the 29th here in Portland at the Treehouse. Please welcome to the stage, Mel Mosley! Hi. I wake up and his dick is still in my ass. <laughs> the night before, my boyfriend Ron and I just got back from a ski trip and we had been drinking on the plane and we were drinking when we got home and then I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain and I realized that Ron was on top of me and he was fucking me in the ass. Now, this is nothing that we had ever done before, nothing that I had ever consented to, but that was happening. I started screaming and he took my head and he put my face into the pillow and I kept screaming until I passed out. And in the morning, I said, uh, what was that all about? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, uh, you were fucking me in the ass. And he said, uh, well, you said that that was okay. I don't remember saying that, but I was drunk. So maybe I did. And he was so apologetic. I stayed with him after that. Um, We broke up later for completely different reasons. But um, from that moment on, I could not feel this part of my body. Um, I went on and I had a variety of monogamous relationships with men and from time to time they would say, hey, um, I'd like to have anal sex with you and I would say yes because I wanted to please them but every single time it either hurt or I felt nothing. So this happened, my, uh, what happened with my anal rape Um, I was 32. In my mid-40s, I discovered polyamory. (laughs) 
and sex positivity. What the fuck? And I began to realize that I can actually explore my body and enjoy it. It was, yes, thank you. It was fucking amazing. Yes, I started having sex with men, women, and groups. Hell yeah. Um, As a teen, I recognized that I was bisexual, but I didn't really explore that as an adult until I discovered polyamory. Um, Yeah, so then at 53, I became part of a triad. I am in a relationship with two other people. In my case, it's a man and a woman, Charity and Cliff, and we live together. We are family. Our kids know each other. We go on vacation together. In fact, Charity and I describe Cliff as our Cylon Boy Scout (laughs) because he's fucking hot. And he has this ridiculous body. And if he gets sick, it will take him 12 hours to recover. And for me and Charity, it will take us 12 days. And um, Charity is my scrappy best friend that I met in middle age. Um, We like to wear matching costumes together. We like to travel together. Um, We go on trips. That is Charity and Cliff. I have witnessed Cliff penetrate charity in the ass and I have watched her face and I have watched listened to her moans and I have watched the bliss that goes on with her when she is getting penetrated anally now that was something that from the moment that I was anally raped at 32 was blocked for me I could not experience any kind of pleasure anally I have watched Charity put on a strap-on and penetrate Cliff anally. And Cliff says, Mel, it is like nothing else that I have ever experienced. I feel so open and so in touch with my emotions. And I know what it is like for a woman every time she allows someone else into her body he connects to it in that way and that to me is just fucking lovely and I don't have that I don't have that doorway into that because that got blocked off when I was 32. So, um, Charity and Cliff asked me if I wanted sexual healing around that. Now, I knew that was a song. (laughs) Did not know that was a thing. The bonus is, uh, Charity is a psychotherapist, and um, Cliff has spent years teaching Tantra, so I was in very good hands. (laughs) for this sexual healing event, and um, I said yes. Charity held me, we were naked, she held me, and she told me that she loved me. I love you. We love you. And Cliff um, lubed up his finger a lot, 
and very slowly and very carefully put his finger up into my anus, first massaging my anus and then slowly melding his finger inside of me. And he told me that he loved me. And I realized this was not sex to get off. This was sex to get real. And as he entered my body that way and started to massage my G-spot from the underside, he said, you may have emotions, you may not. You may see images, you may not. None of those are you. Just let them float by like clouds on a windy day. I did have emotions. I sobbed. I sobbed thinking about past Mel, who was treated like a thing rather than a person by someone that she loved. And I also saw an image. I saw an image of um, this tiny glass heart. It was about the size of a bird's heart. And it was embedded into my chest. And as they massaged me and told me that they loved me, that bird's heart was pulled out of my chest and it flew up into the sky and it shattered all around me. And as that glass fell, I realized I was feeling pleasure in my ass for the first time since I was 32 years old. It was magical. A year after that, we were, uh, Charity Cliff and I were, um, we had rented a house with a bunch of friends for Easter, because, you know, that's what you do when you want to have a sex party. Um, <laughs> so we had a sex party at Easter with a bunch of friends, yeah, and egg hunts and all that shit, but anyway, um, <laughs> seriously, it was awesome. So... Like I said, Charity and I love to wear matching costumes. Um, that year for Christmas, we had bought each other um, matching rainbow wigs, um, rainbow boots, and matching rainbow tail butt plugs. Um, sex parties going on. I decide, you know what? I want to go off on my own for a little bit. And I go into our bedroom, and I decide I am going to put on this fucking outfit by myself. So I put on the rainbow wig, I put on my rainbow boots, I pull out that rainbow butt plug, I lube that thing up. This is the first time I'm doing this on my own. And I very slowly put that butt plug into my ass. And it enters me and feels so good. I am feeling so strong. I look over at the uh, full-length mirror in my rainbow wig, my butt plug, and my rainbow boots, <laughs> and I am a fucking magical unicorn. 
and I consider that a fucking victory. This is Risk. This is Brittany Howard behind me now. And we just heard from Mel Mosley. She is at MelanieMosley.com. That's M-O-S-E-L-E-Y.com. And don't forget to look up the Mystery Box Show. They're at MysteryBoxShow.com. Now, let's jump back into the second half of the show. After the intermission, Reba, Eric, and I shared some confession cards that members of the audience had filled out. It's even more of the Risk slash The Mystery Box show live in Portland. Welcome back from intermission. We got maybe a record amount of confession cards this time. You folks really thought you were sneaking around. You were not sneaking around. (laughs) I'm going to give you one little teaser. So as a reminder, the prompt was, that time I totally thought I was successful hiding my sexual proclivities, but... My sister totally caught me humping her pillows. (laughs) This is the best part. P.S. I didn't wash them. (laughs) Would you like to hear some more of your confessions? Yes. Then keep it going. Help me get Kevin and Eric back up here on stage. Hello, hello, hello. We are back. Hello! <laughs> Kevin, you've never done these confession cards no, with us before. I am a virgin to confession <laughs> cards. <laughs> well, have a selection here. Choose at your peril? <laughs> yeah, at indeed, their peril? Indeed. All right, now I read this? Yeah. The time I totally thought I was successfully hiding my sexual proclivities, my mom bought me a cloak for my 13th birthday, and I used it to sneak out of the house to suck my 17-year-old lover's cock because I was convinced it would protect me from all evil. Was, was this in a forest? Is your name Hermione by any chance? What? You need to protect yourself from evil when you're sucking that cock. <laughs> 
right, let's see what we got here. That time I totally thought I was hiding my sexual proclivities when I was masturbating on top of a tree in a public park. In my defense, I was 12 and very confused. (laughs) About what hiding is? Let's see what we got here. The time I totally thought I was successfully hiding my sexual proclivities, I had an elephant care bear uh, with a huge trunk (laughs) that I used to um, explore with as a kid. My poor mom would wash it and not say anything to me. Oh. Yeah, I had a... I, for a long time, for, I didn't realize you can use your hand to masturbate when I was a kid. I just thought you fuck the bed, right? And my grandma had made me a Sesame Street comforter. That and I, I guess semen, you know, gets a little yellow on white fabric. That thing had so many little yellow splotches on it, and my mom never said anything. <laughs> I feel like I'm in the same club of, of not realizing that the hand was an option when I was young. I had I had a magic kit. Um, you know, with, that has a bunch of tricks for kids, and and one of the tricks involved a cardboard tube that was just the right size. <laughs> There's nothing silkier than ca- cardboard. <laughs> Suppose not. Um, let's do one more. One more. Okay. Good, okay. Good, good. <laughs> Time I totally thought I was successfully hiding my sexual proclivities just last week. Realizing after the fact, any porn was... uh, What? Wait, what's that? My. my My, Oh, my porn was playing through a new acquaintance's Bluetooth speaker. Oh! Oh, I heard the horror stories. (laughs) That person could be sitting right next to you. Yeah, that, and people write to us about that at risk all the time. They'll be like, I was with my family doing the dishes and I was listening to Risk and then accidentally yanked it out and it was you talking about drinking piss, Kevin. <laughs> oh. Well, like Reba said, we got, we got more confessions tonight than we might have ever gotten before. Um, if we didn't read yours out loud, you might see them online. We post on Instagram and Facebook, so check us out there. But uh, for the moment, let's wrap up the confessions. And uh, Kevin, you want to take it away? Sure, All thank right, you. I'm going to take this mic away. Oh, this one, okay. You can take center stage. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of the things that is tricky about being kinky is that you have to do a lot of negotiation before any play to figure out what your kinks and what their kinks are and what might match. So I met a fella on a BDSM site recently. It was about a month ago. All my stories start with that line. <laughs> 
and he was super sexy. Let's call him Dan. He's in his late 20s, a Filipino guy, and, and we really hit it off talking to each other. But he said, you know, I'm really new at this whole kink thing. And, you know, my kinks are a little hard to explain. So I said, oh, okay, why don't I treat you to dinner? And we can, like, talk through it. So we go to dinner, and it was just so much fun. He was instantly charming and cute, and we both seemed to like each other. And in the middle of dinner, I said, okay, now, why don't you tell me one of your kinks, and I'll think about, hmm, can I do that? Could that work for me? And then I'll share one with you. And he said, okay. Well, the first one is, there's an image in my mind. I'm in this, like, sub-basement of an abandoned warehouse. And it's all red light and shadows, and I'm running. I'm terrified. And then I realize I'm running from a serial killer who's chasing me with a machete. And he finally catches up to me, and he rips off all my clothes. And before I know it, we're both drenched in each other's blood. And I said, oh, okay, of course I'm thinking, but not saying out loud, like, what the fuck, how am I going to make that happen? So he's like, well, how about you? Tell me one of yours. And I said, rimming? I like rimming. He was like, oh, yeah, that's easier to do. Yeah, yeah, it is. I was like, all right, well, anyway, maybe you have another. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have another. He said, okay, in this one, I'm one of the (laughs) X-Men. Only one of the really rare ones. Now, I don't know comic books for shit, so if it's not like Wolverine or Halle Berry, I don't know them any, you know, they're all rare to me. So he's like, so I would have to have like a skin-tight leather suit with like custom-made so you could rip off like the private parts and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm running down this hallway. <laughs> and I'm terrified. And I realize... <laughs> I'm being pursued by another X-Men. Only an even rarer one. And he catches up to me and he rips off all my clothes. And before I know it, we're both drenched in each other's blood. I'm like, okay. He said, what's one of yours? I said, pee? I like pee. He's like, yeah, yours are so much easier. I said, yeah, mine are like the male body and stuff that comes out of the male body on a normal day. So he said, well, I have one more. I said, all right, shoot. He said, well, I'm the only one who is naked at this enormous gala, right? All the women are wearing Dior and Chanel and all the men are in tuxes. I'm thinking, fuck that. This one involves casting? (laughs) 
He says, I'm naked, and they're all clothed, and I'm serving hors d'oeuvres, and at some point, they all just realize that I'm the naked one there, and they turn on me, and they all start chasing me down a long hallway. (laughs) And before I know it, we're both drenched in each other's blood. I said, I'm going to have to think about all of this. And I walked home from that date. I was walking from Williamsburg, Brooklyn to Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I was thinking, you know, what did we use in film school? We used caro syrup and red food coloring to make fake blood. But it was always so sticky and I hated it. And then I had a eureka moment. I thought, oh my God, hypnoplay. I texted him very quickly. I was like, look, 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 wait. I just had an idea. What would you think about trying erotic hypnosis? Like, if I put you into a trance and then guided you through a sexy adventure in your mind. And he wrote back, I would love that. So I bought a couple of erotic hypnosis books. (laughs) And I am currently studying them. (laughs) They're back in my hotel room. I'm preparing for my first session because what I've learned is that, you know, I'm up for almost anything except maybe ending up in a situation with someone where we both end up drenched in each other's blood. Okay, I'm so excited to bring our next storyteller to the stage. I should tell you that this next story involves consensual non-consent, which if you don't know what that is, an explanation will be forthcoming. It's been so fabulous to make his acquaintance. He is a barber, he teaches BDSM, and he has been on the mystery box, I think a few times. Please welcome to the stage, Paymon Salashore! I'm standing in this house that I barely recognize, and I'm pacing up and down trying to get the layout in my head, and all these questions are going on in my head, and I'm thinking, okay, well, um, how many exits does it have? Uh, Are there animals? Do the neighbors have dogs? Is there an alarm system? Are there outside floodlights? And I'm directing all these questions to Skye, the person that lives in the house. And I met Skye, I guess you'll hear this a lot tonight, uh, on a BDSM website. (laughs) And we had uh, become play partners, and we had played uh, for a few months, and we had done a lot of things together. Skye is a young art student, non-binary, curvy, with the queerest blue pixie haircut you could imagine. I mean that in the best way. And I'm not asking Sky these questions because I'm house-sitting for their cat. I'm asking these questions because we're in the middle of negotiating CNC, which is consensual non-consent, otherwise known as rape play. Now, the idea is play, right? So we had negotiated over the course of two days that I was going to break into their house, find them in their house, and accost them and force myself on them. 
And this type of roughness wasn't something new to Sky and I. We had definitely done objectification and degradation and really, really rough sex. Sky was what identifies as a heavy bottom, which means they like a lot of pain. But this was sort of a hesitation point for me because twice when I was a teen, I had partners ask me for this type of play. And we didn't call it CNC. We didn't know what that was. But they wanted rape play. They wanted to be beaten and bruised and held down. They wanted to fight. Just like you would expect teenagers trying to engage in such play, it went horrible. It wasn't great because we didn't know how to negotiate. We didn't know how to create safe words. We didn't know how to orchestrate a mindset that separated the bad guy from the good guy. And so those relationships after that were really crappy. That separation between this mask that I put on and who I am afterwards was really unclear. But with Sky, I was in my 30s. I had been in the BDSM community for a while. I had taken classes. I had gone to conferences. And I have taught classes. And I thought, okay, I'm sort of like getting used to this idea. And it's a more common fantasy than you'd think. I would say at least half of my partners have said that they're interested in CNC. And for years, I just said no. But Sky had asked a few times, and they said, oh, the perfect opportunity is coming up. My roommates are out of town for the weekend. And so there I was in the house asking all these questions. So fast forward to that weekend. And I'm standing outside their house. It's dark, 10, 10.30. I'm dressed in all black. I've got my duffel bag full of various bondage gear and a ski mask. And I'm sneaking into their backyard. And I haven't snuck into or out of anything in a long time, probably since I was like in high school. So I have that like anxiety and fear of like, oh, you're going to get caught that I had in high school. The difference is I'm wearing a fucking ski mask and I've got a bag full of bondage gear. <laughs> so, so very carefully, full of anxiety, I make it up to their house and I let myself in the back door. All of the lights downstairs are on, and I'm like, oh, this is horrible. This ruins my element of surprise. So I'm like switching the lights off, and I'm running through the house, and I find very quickly that Sky is not downstairs. They're upstairs. I have to deal with stairs now, which sucks, because stairs. <laughs> and again, uh, it's not my house, so I don't know where the squeaky stairs are, and I'm still really committed to the element of surprise. So finally, what feels like after a year, I make it to the top of the landing atop the stairs, and I have this staring contest with the cat, and uh, finally, yeah, because finally the cat leaves, and I'm like, okay, I'm like a jar adjacent to the room, so I can like barely see in, and they can't see me, and I'm like, okay, they must be in their bedroom. We've negotiated this whole thing. The safe word is red. Unlike other play that use a safe word stoplight system, for this rate play, we had no yellow. There was no pause. It was go and then stop because we didn't want to disrupt that headspace. So here we go. So I make my way into the room and they surprise me because they were making their way out of their room. 
And so we're like face to face and I'm like, okay, well, we can't do this like, oh, startled thing. So I'm just, I get into it. I just put my forearm in their throat and I push them back into the bed and then I pull my knife out and I hold it to their throat and I say, struggle and I'll kill you. And I was fucking committed. I was in it. And uh, they were nice enough not to wear a whole bunch of clothes for me to have to tear off. Uh, I put my knife away, and they're in, like, underwear and a T-shirt. And I'm, like, pulling on their underwear, and I'm pulling on their T-shirt. And they're struggling. Like, we're struggling. And I realize their room is covered in canvas. They're an art student. They have, like, half-done paintings everywhere. And I'm like, shit, I'm going to crush their shit. And then I think, okay... (laughs) Real bad guy wouldn't give a fuck. But I'm not really a bad guy. (laughs) So I like grab them by the hair and I pull them out of the room and I throw them down on the landing atop the stairs and I'm like, okay, I need a breather so I'm going to cuff them so I can make sure that they're like immobilized. So I get my bag out and I'm looking through my bag and I'm looking for my cuffs. And I don't have like metal cuffs. I have leather cuffs. If you have metal cuffs and you're throwing someone around, that's going to really, really hurt. And I'm a nice bad guy. I don't want to really, really hurt. But the problem with leather cuffs is you need a little metal linkage to hook them together. And as I was fiddling with my bag in the car, I didn't have that linkage. So I'm like, fuck. So I throw the cuffs aside and I get out some bondage tape because I am prepared. But I've never used bondage tape in this way just with hands before. So I'm like trying to bind them. And they're like struggling and I'm like kneeing them and like elbowing them. I'm really trying to stay immersed in this. And I was really, really failing to get the bondage tape on them. And at some point they were just like holding their hands behind their back for me. Um, but I knew that that was going to like disrupt their headspace if they had to like feign being bound. So I was like, okay, fuck it. We're doing it. We're, we're going live, guys. Um, so I throw the bondage tape aside, and I grab them by the hair, and I drag them into the other room. Now, we had negotiated any room with a door that was already open was fair game. So I don't know whose room we're in, but we're on their bed. And I got them face down, ass up in the air, and I am trying my best to deliver the hardest fuck that I can. Just going at it super, super hard. And I realize I'm fucking tired. (laughs) And not only am I tired, I've been mouth breathing this whole fucking time. My throat is like sore. My lungs hurt. I can feel my pulse in my ears. And I'm just like, I'm going to fucking pass out. (laughs) This is not what they wanted. And like... I didn't bring my 32-ounce dishwasher-safe Nalgene water bottle in my rape bag. So I'm like, what do I do? So I do the only thing that I can think of doing, and I hop off of them and pop out of them, because that's what it sounds like. And I pull my pants back up, and I say, where's the kitchen? I want water. Because that's the scariest thing a rapist can say. So I drag them by their hair, and I'm at the top of the stairs, and I'm like, okay... Um, if we're doing this struggle thing because they were struggling hard and they fall down the stairs it's going to be a really hard thing to explain to a paramedic while I'm wearing a ski mask and my dick is out (laughs) so I just pull out the knife and I say struggle and I'll throw you down these stairs and they got the point so I put my, my, my knife back and we make our way to the kitchen and then the next scary thing I say is where are the cups And my voice is actually really working for me because it's like all crackly because I'm parched. And so they point to a cabinet and I grab the cups. And now I'm like, okay, well, they can't just stand there 
and like drink water. So I'm like, keep them engaged, keep them engaged. So I grab the back of their head and I force their face up against the refrigerator. And they have one of those like water things in the refrigerator. So, so I'm just like, nobody likes crushed ice. Just. I was thirsty. And I realize I'm losing them at this point. My own needs are throwing us out of headspace. So I fill the glass up one more time and I'm like, okay, shock them back into reality. Just dump it right on their head. So now they're all cold and they let out this like <laughs> yelp, you know, and uh, I drag them into the other room. I throw them down on the carpet and again, try my hardest to deliver like the most hardest insane fucking of my life. And I'm, I'm at that point where like you pull all the way out and you go all the way back in and you're sort of afraid that you're going to miss like just super intense. Just take it, you bitch. And I realize in the midst of this that their hair is wet and their blue hair is rubbing all of this beautiful cream-colored carpet. This house doesn't belong to them. It belongs to their roommates, and it's a nice fucking house. So now I'm duality here in the middle of like, just fucking, oh my God, just fucking. And I'm like trying to peek over and look at, and I'm like, Jesus, fuck, how do I do this? All right, so I flip them over, and I think, okay, well, if I get them on their back, like maybe their head will be, I don't know, maybe their hair is less, less wet on the back. So I'm holding their legs up, and just, and it's worse. So now there's two fucking blue spots on the carpet. And I don't know what to do. And at that point, like, I'm tired. I've got a little bit of anxiety. I'm looking, looking around for, like, a towel or something. And I'm like, no, nah, that's fucking silly. Um, so then, like, I, I go limp. Too many things are happening at once. Too much was asked of me. And so the only thing I could think of doing to keep them in headspace was hit them. So I grabbed them by the leg and pulled them back. And I'm smacking them in the face. And, ah, ah you bitch. And I'm spitting on them. And at that point, they call red, which was really good because I had shit else. Like, I couldn't, I didn't know. So I pull off, <laughs> I pull off the ski mask. And I lay down next to them. I'm like, oh, can I hug you? And they say yes. And I walk them over to the couch. And they lay down for aftercare. And they had already set out this little basket on the kitchen table uh, that was their aftercare basket with a juice box and some crackers and some really nice Ghirardelli chocolate. So I hand them that basket and then I'm like running around the house asking them where the carpet cleaner is because I want to get the stain before it sets. So I'm like dabbing the carpet. And I realize that for me, I'm not going to get that closure because what happens in a scene like this is you go into a headspace called subspace where you're full of endorphins. And then a couple days later, you go into subdrop where you don't have any endorphins. And so, like, I'm not going to know if they were okay with what I did until, like, a week or so later. And even then, I may not even know there's a problem until, like, we try and have sex again. So I'm sort of in this state of, like, I do okay? Uh, for, like, a week, week and a half. But that time comes, and they come over, and we have another play session. And afterwards, we're sitting in aftercare, and they're laying on my bed, and I'm pointing at the bruises on them. I'm like, was that from today? And very playfully, they say, no. 
that was from last week when the bad man came. <laughs> and I was like, oh. That was like the first time where I could see there was a disconnect. They had compartmentalized. Clearly they knew that it was the same person, but they understood that that was a persona, that that wasn't actually me. And so two things came to my mind. One, cardio. It's important. But two, I was really relieved and excited at the opportunity to reprise my role as the bad man. Friends, we're seriously, we are so happy to have joined forces with Risk tonight while they're in Portland on their on their tour. We have been such fans of, of Risk and, and have been blessed to become friends with them and with Kevin. Um, on almost the literal eve of uh, of, of their ten year anniversary. Um, if if seriously, ten years of producing stories like this. If you haven't already, if you're on social media, go post about Risk. Tell people uh, to check out the show. Help them grow. Use the hashtag listen to Risk. It's all over Twitter. Grow that. They are so amazing. Um, yes, give it up again for Risk. Thank Kevin. This next storyteller is... Her, she, she holds a leather title, which is a thing that I didn't even know about, I think, before we met her. She is Miss Oregon State Leather 2018. She travels up and down the West Coast teaching classes on all kinds of kinky subjects. She has told stories at the Mystery Box show twice before. One of those stories ended up on the, Mystery, uh, on the Risk podcast. You may have heard her there, but she is here live tonight. Friends, please put your hands together for Leland Karina! The boy was so cute in his adult-sized diapers. They were white, and they were trimmed with blue, and they had little teddy bears on them. I looked down at him, and his big brown eyes looked back up at me, and they were full of tears. His cheeks were blazing red with embarrassment. And I said... I want you to pee in your diaper for me right now. He swallowed his shame and he said, yes, mommy. Afterwards, I held him in my arms and I said, you are such a good boy. No one had ever wanted to do diaper play with me before. I loved how powerful it made me feel knowing that somebody would give up complete control and let me decide when they were going to do that and wet themselves. I loved so many things about how far he would go with me, but even so, we were at a crossroads. Let me back up and give you a little bit of a backstory. So, the boy lived in New York State. I lived in Portland, here. Um, let's call him Carter. 
And I'd like to tell you that that's boy with a B-O-I, which is what lots of submissive butch women go by in the BDSM community. We had an amazing dominant and submissive connection. I was his sir, and in more intimate moments, his mommy, and he was my devoted servant. But, you know, things just don't always work out the way that you want them to. We first met on Facebook, of all places. Uh, He saw some pictures of me in latex, and he was really into it, and we started chatting a lot. And I said, you know, why don't you write me an old-school formal petition, and perhaps I'll accept it. So he did. He said, sir, it would be my honor to be in service to you. I can offer cooking, cleaning, massage, clerical work, and sexual service. I'm a trained masochist, and I will suffer for your pleasure. The petition was two pages long, and it went into explicit detail about every option. I was impressed. So remember the first time he came to visit me? I was waiting for him in the airport, and I watched him come down the escalator. He was cute enough. He was short and husky, with a dark Italian look about him. I made him walk all the way across the crowded room to me. And when he got to me, I grabbed his face, and I pinched his cheeks until his lips puckered. And then I kissed him so hard that his knees buckled, and he almost fell over. I took him home, and I beat and fucked him into a stupor. There was definitely some chemistry there. But over the next week of his visit, I realized that I didn't really enjoy spending time with him outside of play. He was loud and brash whenever he talked to anyone other than me. He didn't pick up on some major social cues. And his tastes were very mainstream America. He liked shopping malls and chain restaurants, and that's not me. I was willing to train him, but over the next few visits, I didn't see very much improvement. It was when he bought me a sapphire pendant from the mall that I I realized he was having more romantic feelings than I was. And I knew he wanted to relocate to Portland to move his whole life to be closer to me. So it made it really hard to be honest. But one day I said, boy, I have to tell you something that's probably going to end our relationship. I love playing with you. I love fucking you. I love our power dynamic. But I'm not romantically interested in you, and I'm not even that attracted to you. He listened very calmly, and he said, Sir, I don't care if you're attracted to me. I still want to be in service to you, and you can train me to be anything you want. That was a little bit intoxicating. (laughs) Still, I did, I said we had to renegotiate because I did not have the amount of time that I'd been putting into our long distance relationship to dedicate to it anymore. I also didn't want to do any more mommy play because it's so intimate and I felt like it was too intimate for how I felt about him. I also wanted him to take a step back from all the gifts he was sending me. I love getting gifts, but sometimes I felt like he was buying my time. 
So I wanted him to ask permission before he sent me anything. He agreed to all these things. So we moved forward, but with less contact than we'd had before. I had really big things going on in my life at this time. I had actually just relocated back to Portland after being gone for two years. I was in the middle of a leather title. I was Miss Oregon State Leather. I had a new local partner. We were polyamorous. But the most stressful thing that was happening is that I had decided to completely change careers. So I was looking for a new job, my savings were dwindling, and I didn't know how long it was going to take to get into a new career path. But pretty soon after the conversation I had with the boy, he said he had a job lead for me. It was amazing. So I said, tell me about it. Well, he said, I want to introduce you to Jonathan Alonzo. He's a dear friend of mine. He's like a father to me, and I used to work for him. I think he might have a job for you. I was elated. I was like, tell me more. So he said, well, it would be corporate, so it would pay well. You could work from home, which was big for me. And he said, there are government contracts involved with this corporation, so I can't tell you very much about it. You're going to have to wait until you sign the contract and a non-disclosure agreement. So I said, all right, that's great. See if he wants to hire me. Well, Jonathan did want to hire me. So... He asked the boy to negotiate and research the contract because that's what Carter used to do for the corporation. I was so elated. I was just so grateful that I didn't have to look for work anymore. And I remember telling the boy, you are such a good boy. And it oddly felt really similar to the feedback I gave him during BDSM. Over the next month, he had so much to update me on. He said, sir... I did some research, and I found out that your salary should really be higher than I originally thought. Mm, good boy. <laughs> Sir, I talked Jonathan into giving you a really big signing bonus because you've been waiting for all this time for the contract. Mm, really good boy. <laughs> but I cautioned him not to ask for too much because I was already happy with the terms. I was in awe of the situation. I mean, this was some next-level play. I felt so much higher than I had, even when I had gotten his labia pierced and hung a giant U-Haul lock from him for days. <laughs> I felt higher than I did when we had done really intense play, when he had worshipped my cock for hours and then choked himself on it for my pleasure. This, this was just amazing. He was making things happen for me in the real world, and it was all coming together so beautifully. So finally, the time came, about a month into this, where it was time for me to have an online chat with Jonathan so we could get to know each other and talk about the final arrangements. I was really excited. So we started chatting, and he asked me a few questions about my professional history, and he told me a little bit about the job. But what we talked about most was Carter. He, he told me really funny stories about when they used to work together. And he even said that he knew a little bit about the nature of our relationship, which really made me wonder what Carter had told him. And then I thought it was really strange when he asked me, do you own Carter? 
I remember trying to think, how do I answer this in a professional manner? <laughs> I said, well, we use the concept of ownership in our relationship, but it won't interfere with work. He said, oh, I'm sorry if I overstepped. I'm really looking forward to working with you. And then he gave me his email address. I wondered about that question, and I wondered about boundaries, and I really wondered how weird this whole situation was going to get. But I knew that the boy trusted Jonathan, so I kind of put my concerns behind me. After I talked to Jonathan, I got ready to start working. I got my home office together. I pretty much just waited around for the contract to arrive. It was going to go to HR, they were going to finalize it, and then the contract and the check were going to get set in the mail to me. But I waited a day, I waited a few days, I waited a week. No contract and no check. I emailed Jonathan. Hey, what's going on? He was really embarrassed, but the contract and the check had been sent to the wrong office. But then, two more times, it was promised and it never arrived. After the third time, the boy was really upset. He contacted me and he said, Sir, I'm really worried about you. Could I send you my next paycheck? I said, Baby, thank you so much. I really appreciate you looking out for me, but you've already done so much for me. I'm sure it'll work out soon. And then he said, You know, I feel really bad asking this, but I really feel like I just need my mommy. Everything has been so stressful lately. I felt conflicted, but I felt stressed out too, and I could use the comfort, and I said, baby, I know little boys just need their mommies sometimes. Let me read you a story and put you to bed. So we fell back into that intense intimacy of that space together again. After that, I wasn't sure what to do. But I had a thought. I thought, boy, connect me with the HR department. I'm going to go at this from a different angle. So he did. And I started exchanging emails with a woman named Julia Martin Connors. She was extremely professional, very apologetic. But at this point, I was upset. And I outlined a timeline of all the promises that had been made and all of the promises that had been broken. And I said, can you please give me an explanation? She responded and she said, I just want to let you know that Jonathan Alonso is under investigation by our company for all the lies that he has told you. I thought this was kind of a leap. And if the story is starting to sound a little unbelievable to you, well, it was starting to feel that way to me too. That night I had such extreme anxiety, I could not sleep. And this really wild, idea crossed my mind. What if the job isn't even real? But then I thought about the implications of that, and I thought, there's no way. That has to be real. But the thought was so strong that I got out of bed, and I got on my computer, and I started doing frantic internet searches. I didn't find any trace of anybody named Jonathan Alonso, or anybody named Julia Martin Connors, but what I did find was a mugshot of the boy, two years prior, having been convicted for identity theft. I went to bed, I didn't sleep very well, and in the morning I texted him, is the job real? Is Jonathan real? 
He wrote back, what do you mean, sir? And I sent him a picture of his own very grumpy looking mugshot. He left me a video message in response. He was crying at work and he said, sir, how could you ever accuse me of something so awful? I love you so much. I would do anything for you, mommy. I just want to be your good little boy. I felt terrible, but I was still suspect. Later that day, he said, do you want to talk to Julia from HR on the phone? I was like, of course I do. And this tiny little flare of hope lit up inside of me and I thought, maybe I'm a terrible person <laughs> and maybe this is just a really disorganized company and maybe it'll all work out okay. So my partner and I sat in the kitchen. Julia was on speakerphone. She had a southern accent. She sounded really polite and apologetic, just like her emails. And it was all sounding really convincing until on a whim I asked her the name of the company and she went completely silent and I could hear her fumbling with the phone and I could hear her typing. And then she hung up. My partner and I stared at each other in disbelief. Like, what did we just witness? And then I called a friend who had access to really serious background searches. And he looked the boy up and he found nine more convictions. Identity theft, fraud, and the one that made me feel the worst was elder abuse. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> so at that point, everything came crashing down. I realized that the entire job was fake, that the people I'd been corresponding with, Jonathan, Julia, were all the boy. The person I talked to on the phone, I don't know, who do you call to do a fake HR call for you? Apparently he had a friend. But the craziest thing about the whole situation, the most fucked up thing, was that he created this whole fantasy world just to have false intimacy with me, just to entrap me into being his dominant. In reality, he could have had me. If he had realized the power and the honesty of our shared perversity, if he had realized how much that dominant submissive connection meant to me, he could have kept me. And the funny thing is that of all the crazy experiences that we shared, the best service that he ever provided me was giving me this story.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Bjork behind me now, and we just heard from Leland Karina. You can find her on Instagram, at Leland Karina. Before that, we heard from Paymon Salashore. You can find him on Facebook at Paymon Speaks. And Reba Sparrow and Eric Schur run the Mystery Box Show at mysteryboxshow.com. Don't forget, we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. Corporate workshops, one-on-one workshops, in-person workshops, video workshops, it's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. And that is the point at which Mr. Pooh sinks one of his fangs as deep as he tick 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 Pussy, 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 pussy